Good evening, everyone. I'm Congressman Jared Huffman. I want to thank you all for joining me for this town hall. Um, thanks especially to everyone who has reached out to us in advance with your questions. We've gotten over 400. Uh, we've never seen that before. So uh, we've got a great level of engagement and some excellent questions that have already been submitted. Uh, thanks to the many media outlets that are broadcasting this program up and down my wonderful congressional district tonight. My staff and I have received so many calls, emails, and letters uh, about the events of the past week in the Capitol. And I thought it was important, um, even though it's kind of a crazy time, to quickly pull together a town hall like this so that we could have this direct dialogue and you could hear from me and I could have the benefit of your questions as well. Uh, so as I said, we have more than 400 questions in advance. Uh, that is more than I'll be able to answer tonight. We've got about an hour together. And then I have a vote tonight that I have to get down to the House floor to cast. But I will get as far as we can in this hour. And I am going to bounce between questions that we've received in advance and those that will be coming in live through uh, Facebook. The way it'll work is my uh, district director, Jenny Calloway, is uh, going to be online and she will be reading those questions. We're not filtering, we're not screening. You will see uh, a variety of perspectives in these questions, uh, but she might combine one or two to just keep us moving uh, as we go. So let's get started. Um, one more thing, let me mention that as um, all consuming as these events in the Capitol uh, are, uh, we're very mindful of the fact that we're still in the middle of a COVID pandemic that's been um, raging in California and around the country. We are uh, very much working on that as well. And in fact, we will have another town hall uh, on that subject on the vaccine uh, deployment specifically, which I think is the most important thing for us to be talking about right now. And I've got some, some great special guests that'll be joining me for that. Uh, Dr. Robert Rod Rodriguez from President Biden's Transition COVID Advisory Board. And of course, our Marin County uh, Public Health Director, Matt Willis, Sonoma County Public Health Director, Sundari Mace. We're just looking for a time. We had set that up for Thursday, but uh, my being here in the Capitol for these votes the next couple of days um, made it uh, necessary to reschedule. So stay tuned. We will be in touch on the details of that shortly. So uh, about tonight's conversation, uh, because this is such a pressing time, I, I don't have any great prepared statement for you. We're just going to dive pretty much right into your questions. But obviously, uh, this is a big historic moment for our nation. Uh, it is uh, something that um, I never imagined I would be experiencing as a member of Congress. Congress, but uh, really, uh, we've all been attacked and violated. Uh, all of us are Americans. This is our capital. It's a citadel of democracy. And so when that disgraceful uh, mob stormed the Capitol and literally took it over for a few hours where no help was coming and they had uh, control of the place, um, that's just a wake-up call for all of us. It speaks to uh, the level of violence and um, insurrection that uh, we all saw with our own eyes and ears. We don't really have to debate whether these are crimes or um, you know, how serious it is. It, it, it's obvious how serious it, is, serious it is, and we have to make sure there's accountability. Um, it raises security issues that we are trying to work our way through, not just because of what it means to me and my colleagues who are trying to do uh, our work in the Congress, but in eight days, we are going to inaugurate 
President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. We need to make sure that that Capitol building is safe for those purposes as well. And I'm worried that given some of the threats we're seeing, uh, other places uh, are going to be uh, threatened and uh, they could be unsafe as well. So this is a time for all of us to be vigilant, for all of us to uh, really keep our situational awareness, especially if you're around a, a state capital or even a local seat of government or a federal building. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be alarmist, but uh, I, I think we need to understand these threats are real and uh, could very well uh, be, be heightened in the days ahead. But at the same time, uh, this is the United States of America. We're going to get through this and continuing uh, to show up for me and my colleagues to do the work of democracy to make sure that this republic uh, not only continues to be strong, but that we have a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, that's not optional. We're going to make sure that happens. And I do want you to, to know that uh, there's no hesitation on my part to step into the arena uh, regardless. And we're going to trust that it will be safe. So with that, let's get to your questions and I'll ask Jenny to go ahead and start reading them. Okay, so forgive me in advance if I butcher your name, but uh, Bird Lochte is asking, how does the Congress determine those elected members who contributed to the attempted takeover and how can they be held accountable? Yeah, so um, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, was put in the Constitution to deal with uh, people who participated in insurrection in the Confederate uh, uh, the Civil War on the Confederate side, and uh, to prevent them from being part of the uh, Congress uh, going forward, to be seated, and also prevent them from being president or vice president. Uh, that was put there for a reason. It wasn't a, a one and done just for Civil War insurrectionists. It, it was very much envisioning that there could be future insurrections, and you just don't want people like that serving in the United States Congress. Now, how it gets implemented is another story. And uh, I think it may well be up to Congress itself to police that. Uh, there is lots of conversation right now about um, investigations and even legislation. Uh, I think there's no doubt that the House Administration Committee or the Ethics Committee uh, probably has the tools to uh, determine which members of Congress uh, were the most involved whether any of them crossed that line into actively aiding and abetting an insurrection. I happen to believe that at least one and probably several did. And then if that uh, finding is made, um, the House or the Senate, as it may be, uh, would vote on whether to expel them. And that's my understanding of how it works. So a follow-up Facebook question from Eric Zeller says, what's it like going back to work with some of your colleagues that helped to incite the mob that tried to kidnap you and the other colleagues? I'll be honest, it's tough. Uh, it, it is really hard for me to understand how some of my colleagues followed this dangerous, um, combustible um, rhetoric and, and you know indirect calls to violence that pretty quickly became direct calls to violence. They just followed it every step of the way and followed President Trump every step of the way in his incitement. And it's hard for me to look some of them in the eye quite honestly. Now, others I know are feeling contrived. They are reflecting. They've been, they, they weren't so far down the rabbit hole that they couldn't uh, wake up and realize this has gone way too far and we've got to stop it. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the leadership of Adam Kinzinger and uh, Liz Cheney. I, I agree with these people on almost nothing politically, 
but I respect the fact that uh, they are able to draw that line for our country instead of just continuing to follow Donald Trump further and further uh, into such a terrible place. Um, but I'll tell you, it, it is going to be tough for some of these colleagues and, and some of the ones who were involved in contesting the electors um, as extreme as their politics are, I've had friendly relationships with. So Mo Brooks, uh, who's way out there, uh, you know, I've played ping pong with the guy and, and uh, you know, we have been friendly in the elevator and, you know, that goes back for the last eight years. I, I can't do that anymore. Uh, I believe he did something really despicable and unforgivable for our country. And my only thought with regard to him and, and so many of these others is that they they need to be uh, held accountable. And in his case, I think need to be expelled from the Congress. Okay. So a couple of people are asking on Facebook Live, uh, Mayor Margie Kuntz and Chris and others are saying, what's the most effective way that an average person can support the impeachment of the president and removal of seditious lawmakers? Um, you know, I think the, the collective outrage that is being expressed around this country matters. Um, how you choose to be part of that, whether it is through petitions or calls or emails or uh, letters, uh, you know, I leave to you. I think all of it matters, though. Uh, and I think this is a time where if you share that sense of outrage and you really want to be part of um, demanding accountability, please do what you can to let your elected, re elect elected representatives know that that's how you feel. Write a letter to the editor, let your community and your neighbors know um, this is a time to stand up and be counted, I believe. All right. Lois Gray says, why the rush and what's to be gained by trying to impeach him, impeach him in less than two weeks? And why is it a necessity or in any way deserving of such a priority with this political body? Yeah, well, I believe it, it is a very urgent, the, the most urgent thing that we have before us right now, because we've seen for the first time in history, uh, a president of the United States actively incite an armed, deadly insurrection against our democracy and against the Congress. Um, to let that stand, to somehow just look the other way uh, is not an option in terms of the oath that I took to the Constitution. And I think most of the country shares that view. Uh, I'm pleased to see that a growing number of my Republican colleagues in the Congress share that view. And, and this is building momentum in real time. Uh, I, I read just minutes ago that as many as two dozen House Republicans may now support our articles of impeachment uh, and growing support, possibly even including Mitch McConnell in the Senate. So this is one of those big historic moments where things that you think are almost uh, unthinkable, politically uh, impossible, suddenly uh, suddenly take on a life of their own and they can move very quickly. Why do you do it? Because he's still president. He's still got the nuclear codes. And while it may just be for another eight days, uh, there is all sorts of harm that he can cause to our national security, to our democracy, to uh, all of our well-being uh, if we don't get this man out of office. The other reason you do it is because if he is convicted after a Senate trial, the Senate can prohibit him from holding office ever again. And I happen to be one who thinks that that too is important. Uh, as unlikely as it is to imagine Donald Trump coming back and ever being president, and again, um, I don't think we can take that chance, given how absolutely dangerous uh, and uh, destructive he has been. So uh, I support doing it and doing it even if it 
can't be culminated until after he leaves office. You know, the French uh, pretty much thought they were done with Napoleon when they sent him off to Elba uh, and he started plotting his second act. Uh, we can't afford to take a chance like that with someone who has incited violence and insurrection against our country. Okay. Michael Carnacci wants to know, have you reconsidered your position against permitting firearms to be carried in Congress by its elected members after witnessing the failure of the Capitol Police to secure the buildings in which you carry on the people's business? Yeah, th thank you for that question, Michael. And, and look, uh, we should talk about this. Uh, I have always assumed that the Capitol was this fortress that uh, was totally uh, secure and could never be compromised. Obviously, I never imagined an armed mob overrunning Capitol Police the way they did last week. Uh, and so I, I will rethink and reflect on my own assumptions about Capitol security, and I'll do everything I can to make sure that it is never as exposed and vulnerable as it was uh, last Wednesday. But uh, in terms of have members having weapons, no, I, I am not reconsidering. I continue to believe more strongly than ever that it's a really bad idea for members to have guns inside the Capitol complex. And we can actually go back to last, last Wednesday to help make that point. Many of my colleagues did have guns. Uh, they are the most strident, flamboyant gun rights uh, extremists, I would call them. And most of them were in league with the rioters. They were the ones who were out talking to the mob and being part of the incitement and praising them right up until the point when it became obvious that they had to stop praising them. And all of a sudden they had to now be concerned about violence. Uh, the idea that those folks having guns inside the Capitol, bypassing metal detectors, having no limits on what kind of guns and what they do with them inside this complex, the idea that that is somehow making us safer, uh, I find preposterous. I think it makes us a lot less safe and frankly, uh, looking back on last Wednesday, it could have made it even worse. All right, there's a, um, a, a lot of conversation going back and forth here on Facebook between LaMonda Walker and some others around the Black Lives Matter protesters and the treatment of the rioters. And uh, she asks, does only politicians' lives matter? I ask this because you guys did nothing when there were riots over the summer. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about the different treatment. It goes on about uh, the Black Lives Matter protesters and what we just saw this last Yeah, I, I think the, the spirit of that question is that we uh, somehow failed to take uh, violent protests on the left seriously. And uh, I would push back on that. Uh, you know, uh, all we hear about on Fox News and in other conservative media is Antifa. Uh, let me tell you, I, I deplore Antifa. Antifa is the flip side of this violent, murderous mob that we saw at the Capitol last Wednesday. Um, but their size and their significance has been grossly exaggerated by right-wing media. Uh, they should go crawl under their rock. I have condemned them anytime they contributed to violence. I will continue to do that. But no one uh, within the Democratic Party or our political establishment has ever incited them, has ever helped fund their organization and uh, bring them to a, a riot or a mob and uh, give them the resources to do what they do. Uh, so what's happening right now and what happened last week is just fundamentally of a different character. It's fundamentally of a different magnitude than anything you've ever seen with Antifa. Again, 
shame on Antifa, they should crawl under their rock, but it's a very small rock. And the rock that uh, this Trump crowd needs to crawl under is a really large and dangerous rock that the FBI and our uh, Homeland Security officials and intelligence community have uh, rightfully said is a, is a domestic terror threat that needs to be taken very seriously. The other comparison, if I misunderstood the question, the other uh, comparison I get a lot is with the police response to the Black Lives Matter uh, protests versus what we saw last week. And again, huge difference between Black Lives Matter and Antifa, okay? Uh, a lot of folks wanna conflate those. That's unfair and factually inaccurate. Black Lives Matter overwhelmingly was a peaceful, principle set of protests. And the Black Lives, Ladder, uh, Black Lives Matter movement leaders were very disciplined. Uh, they were John Lewis, Martin Luther King, practitioners of nonviolence. They did their very best to make sure that everybody who supported them adhered to those principles. Antifa went rogue and some violent elements went rogue and we condemn that. But really, please, it's, it's grossly unfair to equate Black Lives Matter and that movement to anything that we saw last week in the Capitol. Uh, it is also uh, fair though, to compare the police response because it highlights a real double standard that should be very troubling to all of us. Um, even these peaceful protests like the one at Lafayette Square um, this summer were met with overwhelming police and National Guard and uh, these, these frogmen from agencies we weren't even sure of because they were unmarked, uh, really over the top. Uh, there were tactics used that I think were uh, way excessive uh, for peaceful protesters. And uh, we saw nothing like that in response to an angry armed mob that had been threatening for days to take over the Capitol. So that, that too troubles me. I think that we should um, dig into that double standard, what it says about systemic racism, uh, and we should hold people accountable for, you know, how that came to be. All right, Susan Morgan has a timing question here. Do you believe that the House should send the articles of impeachment to the Senate right away or wait until after Biden's first 100, 100 days? I believe right away. And, and look, this, this idea that somehow the Senate or the House or, or both branches can't walk and chew gum, uh, we really should dispel that. Uh, the Senate has incredible resources and can move very quickly when it wants to. I mean, for goodness sake, they confirmed a Supreme Court justice in, in like a minute uh, late last year. So uh, they can absolutely do confirmation hearings and work with the incoming administration to stand up uh, the various cabinet officials and, and other uh, political appointees while pursuing an impeachment trial. Um, and I just, I don't wanna dignify the notion they can only do one thing at a time. All right, here's a question from uh, the Redwood News in Eureka. Uh, there was a memo sent out from the FBI about an armed protest planned at all 50 states. Can you please comment on that? And are you concerned about this happening on the North Coast? Um, yes, I am. And I, I alluded to this a little bit um, earlier. Um, the intelligence suggests that the threats of violence are not going to be limited to the Capitol, that they are going to extend to state capitals and even, as I say, local um, government buildings, federal buildings, all of that uh, could possibly see violence. So I really want to urge everybody 
uh, to be alert. Uh, I'm certainly urging my colleagues in state and local government to be on high alert. Um, this is a dangerous time and we need to take it seriously. Okay, um, so there are a number of questions that I want to hear about inauguration, quite a few in fact. Karen Frazier says, uh, is a good representative of those questions. Is it safe for there to be a public inauguration and what steps are being taken to ensure the safety of all concerned? While I understand the importance and optics of having a public demonstration of the endurance continuation of democracy versus via Biden and Harris being publicly inaugurated, I'm gravely worried about their safety as well as the safety of all in attendance. Yeah, I, look, uh, this is some of the uh, same concern that my colleagues and I have been expressing privately when we ha had our briefing uh, last night with uh, the acting Capitol Police Chief and uh, uh, someone, I believe, from the Department of Homeland Security. Um, I'll tell you a couple of things that might provide some assurance. First of all, it won't just be the Capitol Police that are securing the inauguration. Uh, this will be a whole different set of actors, including the Secret Service. Uh, this will be designated as a, quote, national security event. What that means is it just triggers a whole bunch of additional resources, including 15,000 members of the National Guard, some of whom are already here. I walked past uh, a big group of guardsmen from Pennsylvania on my way to the office just this evening. And you, you can see the changes unfolding. Um, a serious non-scalable, they call it, perimeter fence that is already going up. Uh, so a much more um, secure perimeter instead of just the little waist high movable barriers, uh, razor wire at the top of that fencing and just a whole a lot of armed presence. So I think it will be as safe as it can be. Uh, nothing is ever totally safe. And that has been the case throughout history. Look, uh, Abraham Lincoln um, had to somehow make his way to the United States Capitol when uh, everyone was threatening to kill him uh, during the peak of Civil War um, chaos. And uh, there's some harrowing stories about the, the Pinkerton detectives and others that uh, tried to make sure that, and it was a modest security detail that he had like a couple guys, uh, but he did it because he had a duty to do it. And uh, those of us that work in the Capitol um, are certainly going to be anxious. We're going to be alert, uh, but we got a duty and we're going to make sure and see it through. And I'm sure that uh, this will be a safe event for uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris. I, I know that no one should come to the Capitol. I've been uh, trying to discourage anyone from coming now for about a month, mainly for COVID concerns. But now we have the additional security concerns. So stay away. Join us on television. It's going to be a really special and important and patriotic moment. Uh, I will be there, but I think it'll be a really small group, and, and I think it will be as secure as possible. Okay, Jeff Saperstein asks, I understand there is no law about domestic terrorism as there is for international terrorism. Will the Congress legislate so any domestic terror group from the far left or far right that recruits and incites online will be infiltrated and prosecuted by the FBI as we do for an Islamic terror group? Yeah, I, I don't know how uh, our current uh, criminal laws and other laws um, treat domestic terrorists differently than international ones, but I agree with you. I think they should be treated the same way and uh, certainly willing to work with my colleagues and, and do what we can uh, to make sure that is the case. Uh, if, if what we saw last week was not domestic terrorism, I don't know what is. Uh, they planted working 
pipe bombs with detonators and timers. These were not props. Uh, these were planted at the Republican and Democratic National Committee offices. I think they were meant as a distraction for Capitol Police so that they could, you know, have a better chance as they stormed the Capitol at getting at Mike Pence and others, Nancy Pelosi. But uh, the definition of terror is uh, using those kind of means uh, to achieve your political ends uh, and indiscriminate killing, including of innocent people. You know, when you uh, drop bombs at the Democratic and Republican national headquarters, uh, you, you're going to kill indiscriminately. So I think it checks all the boxes and has to be treated as such. Okay. There are a number of questions about uh, social media. So Thad Van Buren asks, do you support increased regulation of social media and how will democracy th thrive if we do not control fake news and outright lies? Yeah. Well, obviously social media had a huge role in uh, the rise uh, of this movement and, and it's, uh, you know, the dark uh, path in, 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 that it took. Um, and even Facebook and Twitter have recognized that they have uh, some responsibility here. So that's a first. Um, what are we going to do about it going forward? Um, this is part of a broader conversation that actually had begun long before the events of last week. As these platforms began to um, become so popular, um, there, was, there was a strong desire not to regulate them because they were an expression of innovation and technology, and we didn't want to discourage that. We wanted to just let it flourish. Um, and yet we have seen now, uh, in addition to the wonderful aspects of social media, uh, it has the power to do terrible harm. And uh, so we will have to regulate these platforms. I don't think we've figured out how we're going to do that quite yet. And I think what you saw from Facebook and Twitter was their attempt to get ahead of it, to demonstrate that they they got this, they're going to do it voluntarily, but they're not going to be able to avoid uh, much more significant government regulation and also uh, liability. So uh, I'm not ready to say you just repeal Section 230, but the idea that they would have some sort of special protection against liability makes no sense to me. Uh, so I want to revisit that uh, as well. We're going to have to treat these platforms much more, I think, like publishers and much less like um, you know, just to totally innocent pass-through entities of, uh, of the folks who are doing the First Amendment action uh, among their followers. So uh, stay tuned. I don't have all the answers. I welcome good ideas, but we're going to be tackling that uh, in the months ahead, I know. Hmm. Okay, Patty Chung-Delone asks, what can be done if the president orders the National Guard to back down on a violent mob, either before and during the inauguration? Um, it, it's a... It's a fair question. Uh, I do have concerns that the uh, the fact that White House political operatives were installed in all of these positions in the Department of Defense, and the Department of Homeland Security, uh, it's hard for me to believe that didn't have something to do with uh, our lack of preparedness and the painfully slow response uh, by the National Guard in, in getting its approvals, and also the lack of a contingency plan. You know, even if they were to say, well, gosh, we've got to have a direct ask from the right people before we can deploy, um, they had intelligence that this could happen. They should have had a, a rapid deployment plan in place, ready to go, so that as soon as that request came, they could move, and they didn't. Uh, and it's hard for me to believe that either fear or fear of or loyalty to Donald Trump didn't have 
something to do with that. Um, going forward, um, it's a concern. We still have those people in place. So um, I would be lying if I told you I was 100% confident that all the people in these key agencies uh, can be relied on 100% to do the right thing. Uh, I'm worried about it. We'll continue asking hard questions and getting briefings and trying to get the assurances that we need. Okay. Uh, Marigold Klein wants to know, will the head of the Capitol Police and the officers who opened the gates and stood by be arrested and charged? And if so, charged with treason or what will their charges be? I, I don't know that anybody's talking about treason, but um, there must be accountability for uh, the head of the Capitol Police who is resigning, uh, for the Sergeant at Arms of the House and Senate who have both quit under pressure, and for anyone else uh, in these agencies that either uh, certainly they, they cooperated or was complicit, uh, but also those who just stood down, looked the other way, put on a MAGA hat, uh, took selfies with the rioters. None of that uh, is acceptable. And, and, you know, it's especially despicable when you think about their colleagues who were fighting valiantly to keep the Capitol safe and create harm, um, you know, one of whom was actually killed. So uh, they let down our country. They let down their fellow uh, members of the Capitol Police. And uh, we've got to get answers to that. I, I will tell you, um, the House Sergeant at Arms, Paul Irving, um, is not someone I've ever had confidence in. Uh, for two years now, I've been working on trying to get him to modernize a 1967 regulation that does allow members to bring guns and do whatever they want with guns in the Capitol. Uh, and you would talked about this, but uh, privately, uh, Sergeant Irving would tell me he shares my concern. It's a security risk, but he said that he was concerned about the political blowback if he did anything about it. Uh, that's not an acceptable answer from someone whose job is to keep the Capitol and, and the Congress safe. Uh, and it didn't surprise me at all to see this account that uh, on that fateful day, uh, he declined National Guard backup because he was concerned about optics. Uh, this is a guy that was way more tuned into politics and you know whatever his own political affiliation may be, I have my theories, uh, than he was uh, the job he was supposed to be doing, which is to keep the Capitol safe. And I'm glad he's gone. Well, Nat Nitty Kahan asks a follow-up on that. Who's in charge of investigating collusion in the various security and law enforcement bodies? And who, other than the president, has the authority to call in the necessary help? Is the investigation yeah. going on right now about Trump's communication with the law enforcement bodies? Um, so there's, let me unpack the pieces yeah. of that. In terms of the Capitol Police, um, the Capitol Police, people don't always appreciate it. It's governed by a Capitol Police board. It does not, uh, this entity does not report directly to Congress. Uh, the architect of the Capitol is on the police board and, and others. Um, so, but it's one step removed from direct accountability to the Congress, and that's part of our problem. We're going to change that. I, I'm pretty confident we will change that. Uh, but it also tells us that the Capitol Police Board is not who we need to look to to do the honest investigation and, and get answers and accountability. We're going to have to stand up a, a special independent type of inquiry uh, and then empower it to, to go and do that. As far as uh, collusion, uh, complicity by either members of Congress or the White House or anyone else, I, I think that too has to happen and it has to happen with a lot of independence and integrity. I don't think we're going to be able to get any of that 
uh, until after January 20th. But I do think that uh, this Congress, working with the Biden-Harris administration, should convene something like a 9-11 commission, uh, bipartisan, uh, credible people beyond reproach, and they should bring us those answers, and we should take that information and, uh, and act on it to hold people accountable and to make reforms and changes uh, as appropriate. All right, there's a question here about uh, censure. Howard Hertz wants to know, why not censure Trump instead of impeach? I believe it's a mistake to engage with Trump in any manner where he or his minions have the opportunity to have a platform. Yeah, so a censure would be toothless and meaningless. It, it was not enforceable. Um, it, it wouldn't do anything. Impeachment is still the one tool that we have that could potentially uh, remove him from office, uh, even if it just spares us a few days of exposure to uh, the danger of his presidency. Uh, impeachment also carries with it a lot more weight uh, in terms of pressuring him to do the right thing and resign. Um, so the idea that censure would do that, no, it really wouldn't. He wouldn't take that seriously. The other concern about censure, you know, it, I've heard people say that, well, gosh, if you do censure, you might be able to get really broad bipartisan support because Kevin McCarthy is saying that he's open to censure. My concern is in the quest for that uh, patina of bipartisan support, you get something that's watered down to the point uh, of being meaningless. Kevin McCarthy's already talked about a censure resolution that would be infused with language about um, you know, looking into election fraud. And that's just nonsense. It's just getting us right back into the big lie that perpetuated a lot of this violence, and we are, we're past that. We're way past that. Okay, Polly Schultz wants to know, I would like to ask your thoughts about the idea of introducing legislation to do away with presidential pardoning or self-pardoning in the future. Yeah. Well, look, I would love to be able to legislate some sideboards on the pardon power in the Constitution. And if you join me for the um, Town hall. I, I don't remember if it was a town hall or a podcast, but I had uh, some constitutional authority. Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of uh, UC Berkeley School of Law, one of our foremost constitutional scholars, to talk about some of these things. Um, you really can't legislate any meaningful limits on the pardon power because it's in the Constitution, and the president has almost absolute pardon power. So if we're going to change it, we're going to have to have a constitutional amendment. Um, and, you know, there's a process for doing that. doesn't happen very often, but maybe the events uh, of the past week, the past few months, uh, have laid the foundation to get the American people to, to give us that reform uh, of the pardon power through a constitutional amendment. Okay. Uh, Hank Zucker asks, what's your position on D.C. statehood? Do you believe that the inability of the mayor of D.C. to direct the National Guard contributed to the severity of what we saw on January 6th? Yeah, I supported D.C. statehood before all of this, but I do think that the events of the past week um, really highlighted the, the dysfunctionality that we have from a security perspective in Washington, D.C., where the mayor, Muriel Bowser, uh, unlike governors uh, in every other place in this country, uh, cannot uh, activate her National Guard without the permission of the, the president and the people who work for the president. Um, and yeah, we would never imagine a situation where the president himself would be inciting the security threat. That's what we've seen. Uh, but to have her at the mercy uh, of the very person who was inciting the threat, 
that's obviously a scenario that um, wouldn't exist if DC had statehood and had the authority to call up uh, its own National Guard. Okay. So Bill Dittman says 74 million people voted for Trump. White supremacy has been part of the U.S. profile since the very beginning. Do you have any idea concerning how we can reduce the tribalism that affects us? Well, all of us are going to have to uh, be part of that. And, and I appreciate the question because there's, there's so many aspects of how we got here and, and the tribalism and the over-caffeinated, hyper-partisan uh, combat we all find ourselves in. Uh, it's got to give, something's got to change. I think President-elect Biden has just been wonderfully on message on this subject, uh, going back before the election, but certainly uh, since the election, he's just been fantastic at saying the right things, uh, at, at very sincerely conveying that he wants to be the president of the entire country and wants to bring us together. So uh, that's a good model, I think, for all of us to do our best to try to follow, we're still going to have our political differences, and we're going to have to. You know, we use metaphor. I'm sorry, we use the fight metaphor so darn much. Uh, we talk about fighting for healthcare, fighting for this and that, and uh, you know, we we saw last week that sometimes that gets taken quite literally, and we should just try to tone down our rhetoric. I think whenever we can, uh, I'll I'll try to do my part. Look, I got really strong views, but. I don't want to see us divided neighbor against neighbor and uh, red states against blue states. I, I want us all to be better than that. And I want to get back to something where they, our differences are a constructive friction, where we might have political opponents, but we don't have enemies among our fellow Americans and, and our neighbors. Okay. So uh, Daniel Levy uh, is saying, hello, Congressman Huffman. You have repeatedly mentioned domestic terrorism. Is there a way to specify that we're talking about white national domestic terrorism as opposed to the more vague domestic terrorism? This distinction seems important when law enforcement has shown to be structurally biased against black and brown individuals. Yeah, well, clearly there were elements of the white nationalist strain of domestic terror uh, in this group. Uh, it's obvious. It's right there uh, when the footage that we have and some of the leaders of this uh, group have now been arrested. So uh, you're, you're right. That was the tenor of what we just uh, lived through. But there, there's other types of domestic terror that need to be taken seriously as well. And, and I don't know which, if any of those elements may have been a part uh, of what happened last week. We, we got to get all the facts, but we absolutely do know that there were white nationalist elements of it, racist elements, uh, and, and we need to acknowledge that. There are a number of people that are concerned that we are at a civil war. What are your thoughts on that? We're not in a civil war. We certainly have some people wanting us to be in a civil war and using the kind of rhetoric and, and taking actions that uh, are ga uh, gauged at taking us back into, you know, refighting the Civil War, something like that. Uh, it's, it's not something that any of us want to see. I don't think the country is going to stand for it. I don't even think reference was made to the 75 million people that voted for Donald Trump. I don't think most of those people wanted violence. I don't think most of those people wanted a civil war or an insurrection or an armed deadly storming of the Capitol. I think most of them, for their own reasons, uh, supported this man and his politics. Uh, and now recognize that this was totally wrong, that it went way too far and want to be part of uh, a, a, a better community within this country that, that gets us back on track. So 
Um, no, we're not in a civil war, and I don't think we're going to be. Thomas Bayless wants to know, will another impeachment with conviction ensure that he can't run for office again? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Greg Lance wants to know, where do you stand on prosecuting the president once his term versus the opposing viewpoint that the nation needs to heal. In my opinion, until politicians face the consequences of their actions, they will feel like they can always push the envelope further and further. Yeah, well, it, it is a very important question and uh, I would have been very hesitant to um, sort of pronounce that he should be prosecuted or anything like that before some of these recent events. I have to say we have just blown past any line of deference that might be owed to a former president in the name of um, healing and unity. Uh, these crimes are so significant. The damage to our democracy uh, is so extreme and unprecedented that there, that I agree with you, there simply must be accountability. We don't want to ever become the kind of country where you know, each new administration simply throws the book at its political enemies and the law becomes you know, this, this partisan weapon that uh, puts us in a cycle of vengeance and retribution. Uh, we need an honest rule of law, independent judiciary, independent to the extent possible uh, law enforcement. Joe Biden gets that. We saw the speech that he gave when he was introducing Merrick Garland as his uh, nominee for attorney general. It very much... Uh, uh, struck this theme. Uh, I think Joe Biden institutionally understands why we've got to restore that integrity, that um, nonpartisan, non-political character to the Department of Justice and other agencies, because the public has to have confidence that in that extreme situation, when you have to go after a politician, that it's not about politics, that it's about the rule of law. Uh, that's what I think it's about with Donald Trump how we approach it is gonna be very important, but I think we have to do it. Okay, so um, there are a number of people that are talking about the role of the media, TV, cable, and radio news. Ian Sherbert says, what can be done about the role that TV, cable, and radio news media plays in exploiting sensationalism? Because these companies make a lot of money doing this. Yeah. Well, look, anybody who uh, incites violence, commits defamation, you know, there, there are uh, existing tools of accountability. It's one of the reasons why even an over-the-top outlet like Newsmax um, had to just hit the brakes and pull back uh, and pivot on this charge that the Dominion voting machines uh, were fraudulent and had contributed to stealing the election because that was causing actionable damage to a private company and they were going to sue them. Uh, so, you know, there, there are some tools for accountability out there. Um, there used to be many more. We used to have this fairness doctrine that the FCC would enforce, but uh, we're way past that. We now have this proliferate. It's not just the, the airwaves, the federally owned airwaves where people get their information. It's private modes of uh, communication and the internet and, and everything that you see this proliferation. And I don't think we'll ever, you know, corral that back into something that can be regulated under a fairness doctrine or anything like it. Uh, but there should be legal accountability for anyone who incites and causes bad things to happen, uh, defamation, anything like that. And then, uh, you know, it, it's, it's less tangible perhaps, but 
all of us have uh, some responsibility to just pursue good information, to share good information, to, to have some factual hygiene in the way we educate and inform ourselves and uh, what we say to our friends and neighbors. All right. So Linda Lips wants to know, Congressman Huffman, do you think the events of this week might lead to gun reform now that Congress knows how it feels to be ducking and covering from maniacal gun toters? I don't know that the events of this week uh, change much about the landscape on uh, gun violence. Uh, we were already poised to pass uh, background checks and other sensible uh, limitations on uh, weapons of mass destruction, assault, assault weapons. Um, I think we'll continue to push in and we have the country with us. Uh, the vast majority of Americans want to see us do that. So I don't think anything about last week changed it either way. Okay, David Reich wants to know, why didn't you satisfy voters to help prove the election was fair and honest, especially after so many affidavits were signed and filed by witnesses? Yeah, so I guess the question is, at what point uh, do you have to keep re-answering the same question? I mean, we heard Rudy Giuliani and others make all of these over-the-top accusations about dead people voting. Uh, our election system is not administered by Congress. It's administered by the states and by local officials. And every one of those allegations was looked at. And you heard Republican election officials debunking them, saying these things are false. They did not happen. They are just not true. And then you saw 60 lawsuits that proceeded through various courts, state and federal courts, including conservative Trump appointed judges that rejected all of these specious claims including the Supreme Court of the United States, which Donald Trump what, thought was his, uh, his homies that were gonna take care of him. So look, there does come a point when you just need to move on. Um, we have looked at all of these accusations. They have received more than their fair uh, scrutiny, impartial consideration, and they are false. They're just not real. So uh, we need to move on. The country's ready to move on. Republican judges all over this country, Republican election officials are ready to move on. The Supreme Court is ready to move on uh, and it's time to move on. Okay. Kimberly Mallory has a long question here, but it's a good one that we haven't covered today. I wrote a question earlier about addressing voting issues. Moving forward, how will you address the outdated electoral college? Primaries that give some similar small states more power in determining who I can vote for in our state primary due to momentum and funding, depending on how they did on those earlier primaries. Voting restrictions we have witnessed Republicans try to implement with a focus on people of color, foreign actors influencing our elections like Russia in yeah. 2016. Are our elections safer? So electoral college and everything else. Yeah, so uh, the, 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 the second part had, had a whole bunch of things about election integrity and voter suppression. Let me just say that I expect that the, the first bill introduced uh, in this 117th Congress is, is going to be, again, H.R. 1, which is our Democratic um, Comprehensive Reform Bill. It will include ethics. It will include voting rights. It will include uh, election security and election integrity, many of the things that you just mentioned. And I think um, the good news about the Georgia Senate races uh, being resolved now the way they were is the, the floor of the United States Senate is no longer on lockdown. We can actually bring good bills to a vote and get them to the president's desk. And we have a president who would sign a bill 
like HR1. So I, I think uh, we have an opportunity to make a huge amount of progress on voter suppression and uh, independent redistricting and other things that are just vital reforms that are wrapped up in HR1. Uh, and I'm excited uh, to move that in, in the days ahead. Uh, the first part of the question, remind me, Jenny, what that was? About the Electoral College. Oh yeah, the Electoral College. Well, look, um, the, the Electoral College is one of those relics of slavery that uh, makes no sense in, in this day and age. It is uh, an anachronism. And uh, it was put in place to uh, kind of address the fact that uh, three-fifths of the slave uh, used to count uh, in allocating uh, political power in the, in the early days of our country. We got rid of this atrocious institution of slavery and this three-fifths of a person provision that used to be in the Constitution. But for some reason, um, we hung on to the Electoral College, which was uh, an extension of all that. And, and we're still dealing with uh, the anachronism that uh, amplifies, uh, exaggerates the power of, of certain states over others. Um, so I, I would love to get rid of it. Uh, I will be honest with you, it's just really hard to do because uh, you sort of have a stranglehold by those states. They would have to go along uh, as part of a supermajority to amend the Constitution to get rid of it. And they're not going to do that because right now it gives them more power. Uh, there are some workarounds. Uh, states could pledge their electors to go with the popular vote, but that's not a durable solution. That only works as long as those states um, feel like the popular vote agrees with them. As soon as the popular vote starts disagreeing with them, they're gonna want out of that compact with other states. They're gonna not wanna pledge their electors to go with the popular vote. So it's really not uh, an ideal fix. Uh, I will do what I can. I certainly will support amending the constitution, uh, but I think the politics aren't quite there. That could change. We could add uh, the District of Columbia. We could add Puerto Rico. We could add more demographic change in any number of states. And as soon as the Electoral College starts to look a lot more like the national popular vote, the stage will be set to pass a constitutional amendment and to do the right thing. But I don't think we're quite there right now. Sorry for the long answer. It was a long question too, so it's all good. So uh, Sherman Shapiro wants to know, I see reported that at least two Congress members have contracted COVID-19 since last Wednesday. Yeah. Is it true that these individuals have already had the first COVID-19 jab or vaccine? So it's actually up to three now of my colleagues who were forced to shelter in place during Wednesday's lockdown with Republican colleagues who refused to wear a mask. And this is just maddening. Um, this far into the pandemic with thousands of people dying every day um, that they would continue to be so reckless and arrogant, um, but they are. And uh, we need to make sure that there are consequences. We'll work through either the House Ethics Committee or uh, other authorities to try to um, censure these members. Uh, and there's also talk about putting some fines in place. You shouldn't have to find a grown-up, a grown-up member of Congress for not following a rule like this, but that is sort of where we are. That is the level of ignorance and recklessness and defiance that we are grappling with and lack of courtesy and respect for your fellow uh, human being. 
All right. Um, Ivan Light says, would you agree that Congress has ceded too much authority to the president and now needs to reclaim constitutionally endowed powers it surrendered? If so, would you support restoration of congressional approval over acts of war against foreign countries, including nuclear war, as well as more aggressive use of the congressional budget authority to restrain the executive? What other proposals can you offer so that a future president cannot drag the country into authoritarianism? I, I do agree uh, with that. And, and certainly the war power is a great example of something where Congress has just over, over many decades ceded authority to the point now presidents uh, really don't even feel very compelled to consult Congress when they uh, have to deploy troops into what really does uh, seem to be warlike situations. We have that going on around the world. Congress has not authorized a lot of it. Um, and then we've also got too many of these blue sky authorizations of force left over from the aftermath of 9-11, they need to be repealed. Um, we're no longer you know, fighting Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, and uh, yet we can't quite muster uh, the, the political will to get that done. I think that'll happen in this next Congress, finally, and I think we've got a president who will sign it. But that's one area in which presidential power needs to give back to the legislative branch so that we have meaningful checks and balances the way the Constitution was intended. Trade authority is another one. Uh, Article one vests trade authority in the United States Congress, but uh, it really hasn't worked that way for a long, long time. Uh, and then all of the things we do, you mentioned the power of the purse and budget authority, for that to have teeth and meaning, uh, we've got to do a couple of things. We've got to kind of take stock of all of these leftover emergency authorities going back to the Korean War or even longer that presidents continue to use to kind of do whatever they want, to move funds around. President Trump did it by redirecting money to the border wall, citing you know really old and uh, not even applicable, I believe, emergency authorities. We need those authorities to sunset and uh, we need to reclaim some of that authority away from the executive branch. And then we need for our subpoenas and our oversight authority to actually mean something and have teeth. Um, our ability to exercise the power of the person, to have hearings and call witnesses and to hold the executive branch accountable uh, really depends on an honor system right now as President Trump was able to figure out and he just stopped honoring it. He stopped cooperating. Um, and it, it takes years and years to ever get the litigation all the way up to the Supreme Court to tell a presidential appointee that they got to show up or that they got to produce documents. And by then the administration has changed and those people have left office. So we, we've got to uh, bring a much more functional uh, means of accountability to bear if we're going to restore some of that Article One check and balance authority. I, I do agree with you. Okay. It looks like we have time for about two more questions here. Um, Michael Crosby wants to know why at this point impeach Trump when Biden's theme is America United. Seems you have more important things to do like COVID-19 vaccine and opening up California. Yeah. Well, because Trump is a clear and present danger to our democracy and our security. I wish it weren't so. But uh, the fact that even Mike Pence uh, has acknowledged privately that um, he may need to invoke the 25th Amendment. The fact that uh, all of these very conservative Republicans are coming on board now uh, tells you a lot. This is not partisan. This is not something that is uh, intended to frustrate unity. We all want unity, uh, but there must first be a securing of the presidency so it can't harm us uh, right here and now. 
and there has to be accountability. We can do that and keep building unity together as we go forward. All right, so it is time for you to vote. So maybe you could give some uh, closing remarks and remind people of where they can see this town hall uh, after we've completing it tonight. Yeah, thanks. Why don't you give me one more question, Jenny? I'm looking at my clock. I think I can still get down to the vote um, and then I'll, I'll do that. Okay. Um, Sandra Cruz says, do you think it's time for mending our bridges by working together to find solutions that support our democracy? It feels like the right time, but carrying our vendetta-like impeachment articles and talk about 25th from the far left do just the opposite. Those actions will further divide citizens. Shouldn't Congress and lawmakers across the land make efforts to work together and put the past behind and move forward? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, the, the, these are the, this is a single article of impeachment for inciting insurrection. It has been crafted in consultation with our Republican colleagues. It is not coming from the far left. Um, and so I, I gotta push back against maybe some of the assumptions that, that may not have been understood about what's really going on here. Uh, and the fact that, um, you know, Mitch McConnell's over there saying he's, he's pleased this is moving forward. Liz Cheney is joining me in this. Uh, dozens of former Republican members of Congress from John Boehner to Paul Ryan and other conservative stalwarts are urging Congress to do this. So please don't characterize this as something that's just uh, an expression of the far left or anything like that. It is it's much more serious and credible and nonpartisan than any of that. But but sure, uh, we do need to move forward. And this again is, is it's gonna challenge us to walk and chew gum. We can uh, ensure accountability, we can ensure the rule of law, and we can do that uh, in a manner that is dignified, that is uh, civil and respectful, and that each of us uh, includes doing our part to uh, turn down the temperature and try to bring this country back together. I promise you, I'm gonna do everything I can to do that. I'm still uh, gonna care about the things I care about though, and I'm still gonna keep pushing my political priorities, but uh, I'm very interested in unifying this country. It is broken. It is divided. I believe a huge amount of that is because of Donald Trump and his allies. But uh, you are right in the sense that it is time for all of us to just focus on the future and some healing that we badly need in the months ahead. Okay, so I think that's a wrap. I got to go down to the floor now to vote on a resolution calling on Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. It's a non-binding resolution, uh, but I hope that it, it adds to at least the possibility of that happening, because that's the fastest way to address uh, the threat that President Trump poses right now. Uh, I will share with you, I, I'm not holding my breath for Mike Pence to do this uh, for this simple reason. I think he would do it if he could. I think Mike Pence has seen enough. I think that gallows that was erected over here and that mob that was chanting hang Mike Pence probably had a very clarifying effect on Mike Pence in terms of what this really means. But I don't think he can muster the support in the cabinet to get this done because that's how the 25th amendment works and a vice president alone can't do it. Uh, all the adults have left the room in the Trump administration. It's why this is such a very, very dangerous situation right now. And the people who are left are the least likely to cross Donald Trump. So we will pass this resolution. We will hope that somehow Mike Pence can cobble together uh, the support in the cabinet to do the 25th. But really, uh, the, the possibility of very quickly passing impeachment and getting this momentum carrying over into the Senate is probably 
our best chance of removing Trump from office before he does more harm. Jenny asked me to uh, remind you that this event is going to be available on all sorts of local media. Um, I will probably forget somebody if I list them, but if you're on my Facebook page uh, or have got there by way of uh, huffman.house.gov, you can see a listing of all the places where you can see this and you can share it with your neighbors and your friends if you think that they might appreciate um, seeing this conversation. Uh, again, we're going to have a town hall on uh, the coronavirus pandemic and on vaccine deployment in the days ahead. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining me for this tonight on short notice. Take care. Stay safe.